Welcome to The Quarantine Tapes, a daily podcast from Onassis, L.A. and Dublin. Hosted by Paul Holdengraber, this series chronicles shifting paradigms in the era of social distancing. Hello, could I please speak with Lawrence Wilkerson? Uh, you have it. Hello, Lawrence. This is Paul Holdengraber calling you from the Quarantine Tapes. Thank you so much for taking my call and for being part of the Quarantine Tapes. I'm really delighted you had the time to do so. I'm glad I could do it. How are you? And if you could tell me, um, how have you been spending these last three, four months of, let us say, the, the, our quarantine time? Doing a, a great many things. Uh, finishing up my semester at the College of William & Mary. Uh, mostly through Zoom and virtual teaching. Yeah. And also working with uh, three different groups, the National Task Force for Election Crises, the Transition Integrity uh, Project, and the Silver Linings Group uh, to ensure that we have free and fair elections in November. All three groups very concerned about those elections. Are you worried? Very much so. Um, We've done a lot of crisis planning, a lot of uh, tabletop exercises with everyone from precinct workers in various key states to secretaries of state from the states and other people like that um, to try and gain insights into the sorts of things that might happen and then come up with ways to manage those things, to counter those things, to deal with them and so forth. On a, on a lighter note, before we get to heavier notes, how has it been for you teaching through Zoom? Not as challenging as I would have thought. Uh, William & Mary's a had lot, a contract. A lot of people are saying that, by the way, to me. Well, we've had a contract with Zoom at my school for quite a while, and I do simulations and exercises in my course, and I normally have my students either play the National Security Council or one of the committees beneath the council. And we do secure video teleconference simulation with commanders in the field, with uh, State Department ambassadors in the field and so forth, all role-played by others, of course. But so we were very accustomed to using Zoom in that mode, and it wasn't much different shifting to teaching mode. And what were you teaching? I teach national security decision-making uh, basically since World War II. We, we look at presidential decisions such as Harry Truman's in 1950 to oppose the North Korean invasion of South Korea, all the way up to all the presidents uh, to President Obama's decision to uh, join the United Nations in Libya. So we, we look at all key decisions that president make, presidents make that uh, – we define as those decisions which might or do send young men and young women and young men to die for state purposes and something we often forget, kill other people for state purposes. Right. Well, I'm, I'm sure there's, there's a lot to say about all the decisions being made 
at this moment. A few weeks ago, Trump and his Department of Justice began labeling certain domestic protesters as terrorists. What are, in your view, the legal implications of their usage when they use such a word? I think you put your finger on something that we've been talking about in the military professional community and in the national security community for some time, and that is the the way these endless wars, let's face it, I have students now who have never lived in a country not at war. I know. These, These endless wars bring things home with them. And one of the things that it brought home with them is the militarization of our law enforcement entities across the country. Um, and what you're seeing now is a manifestation of that, uh, a very brutal manifestation of it in my view, mixed with the traditional law enforcement prejudice towards black Americans and uh, other Americans too, usually of minority status or very poor. And you're seeing it played out on the streets in America today in in ways that are very dangerous for the aspirational republic that we claim to be. And what you're seeing in terms of calling them terrorists or treating them like terrorists is an attempt by the government under the very draconian laws passed by George W. Bush and then further enhanced by Barack Obama um, to deal with terrorism in a way that usurps our civil liberties, indeed violates laws, uh, long-held laws like habeas corpus and so forth, because Obama actually killed an American without due process of law, and his attorney general had the colossal gall to say that due process did not necessarily include legal process, which was preposterous. But that's how far we've come away from the aspirational republic uh, we think we are. You, you've been living through so many uh, extraordinary moments and, and just preparing my conversation with you, I came upon this that in the George W. Bush administration, some of your colleagues at the State Department referred to the vice president's office as a Gestapo. What do you think they meant? And do you think in any way they were joking? I think they were deadly serious, and they were referring to people like David Addington, uh, Richard Cheney, the vice president at the time, his chief lawyer, Peter Libby, his chief of staff, whom I think probably everyone knows, recognizes the name of now after his run-in with the FBI, um, and others in the vice president's office to include the vice president himself, and they referred to them that way because they saw them, and they're very ideological and actually, I would call it weird, bizarre theory of the unitary exec- executive. That is to say, basically, the president of the United States has every power in the world. No one can check him, especially if he is at war. That sort of mentality, that sort of approach to foreign and security policy uh, made people like the Deputy Secretary of State, Richard Armitage, refer to them as Nazis. Amazing. Lawrence, can you give us a sense based on your own firsthand experience of the ways in which lying operates within the government? We often think of the government lying to the people, but it seems that quite often the deception operates inside of the government between various factions. Yes, undoubtedly it does. Um, 
I saw that so vividly as I moved from being a military professional, spending 31 years in the Department of Defense, and then moved over to being uh, an erstwhile, if you will, diplomat at the State Department. I saw the bureaucratic hatred, literally, at the Defense Department for the diplomatic instrument represented by state. And then when I got to state, I saw the, not necessarily the hatred, but I saw the, the ill will that uh, many diplomats registered with regard to the DOD. And in order to get over on them bureaucratically, the one or the other, there are often half-truths, obfuscations, lies even, uh, that permeated a policy or permeated a particular approach to a policy simply because of that bureaucratic jealousy or that bureaucratic infighting. I also saw it, of course, in the government as a whole with regard to the American people, the latter being, in my view, a much more heinous and dangerous use of uh, falsehoods, lies, fake news, and so forth, that used by the government itself to actually persuade the American people to do something that the American people, were they to know the truth, probably would not have wanted to do. Do you, do you think those, those that... Um that tension uh, has ex been exacerbated in recent time, even though you're not in the government now? Do you have a sense that it's worse? I do, and I have that sense primarily because a lot of people who are still in the government still talk to me, and a lot of the people who are just fresh out of the government still talk to me. That's good. And I, yeah, I think in the last month, with the increasing recognition by our allies and friends in the world, that we have handled the, the response to the COVID-19 pandemic so incompetently that you know, the tension has grown to what I would call very dangerous proportions. And that's one reason why we're looking at the elections in November so closely, because we see these tensions perhaps erupting around election time and causing some real problems with those elections. Can you, can you tell a little bit more what you mean by very dangerous and those tensions? Because I think it's yeah. so, so important yeah. for... I mean, it's, I, I'm, I'm so curious, Lawrence, and I, I feel nearly compelled to ask you because I, I need to understand. I feel that we're at a, at a critical moment. Some people call it a portal uh, when they want to be hopeful, but you're obviously seeing something that is both dangerous and could, I suspect, um, change the world. We're seeing so many things in place now that would cause some real problems with the November elections, but it's become, it's become quite disconcerting. Um, take, for example, the present movement towards more and more mail-in voting, partly a response to COVID-19, but also a response to having a country that has over 200 million registered voters and trying to give each of them ample opportunity to cast a ballot. Mm. So mail-in voting has become uh, a go-to methodology for a lot of the states. Well, we have a postmaster general now who is, uh, in a word, a toady for the president. He's a sycophant. He has announced that part of his purpose in life is to privatize the post office. That is to say, get rid of the U.S. post office. Um, I'm sure there are contractors out there like Fred Smith at FedEx who are uh, salivating over that prospect and the, pro and the profits that they would gain from it. 
but the post office is a bastion of our republic. Right. And if it's going to be used for voting, and you have a sycophant in as the postmaster general, and you also have a leader in the Senate who refuses to allow the some $160 billion to be appropriated in order to take care of postal debt and to pay off pensions and such as that. And you have that coming to a head in late August and early September. You have the potential for all of this voting that's been dedicated to the post office suddenly becoming an impossibility because the postmaster general says, well, I don't have any money, therefore I'm shutting down the post office, and oh, by the way, the president wants me to privatize this anyway. And so we have a real crisis just as we're getting ready to enter the period most seriously uh, affected by the November elections. That's just one scenario. No, but it's one scenario. Uh, What are the other scenarios? But this one is, is really, I mean, really frightening. And and it is it's frightening, and it seems that those in charge, let us say, seem to say that um, they just would. The reason for not voting by 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 mail is because of fraud. And from everything that I've read, and obviously I'm just trying to be an informed citizen, from everything I've read, that is just simply not true. You're absolutely correct. We've been doing it in Colorado, perhaps the most efficient. <laughs> effective model system in the United States for almost 20 years. And fraud is judged by impartial observers, even international observers in Colorado, to be less than less than a half a percent. You can't get much cleaner than that than doing it in Oregon and, and in a few other states, too. It's very efficient. It works. People like it. Uh, I will tell you uh, one, one aspect of it that I wasn't aware of. A, a lot of the people who get their ballots by mail uh, really like the idea of dropping their ballot somewhere other than in a postal envelope with a stamp on it. <laughs> they like taking it into a drop box. Huh. Uh, it makes them feel like they're still doing the old kind of ballot box right. voting, but they're doing it a lot more efficiently. Didn't so you have, to, you have to arrange for each of these methodologies. But where it is being used, it is very efficient. It's been very effective, and people like it. I think that's one reason why a lot of states are trying to spread it and trying to get accustomed to doing it themselves. And that makes this dilemma, potential dilemma with the post office all the more serious. But what, what I'm amazed by, Lawrence, all along now is I, I thought there were check and balances. I thought that one, one couldn't just dismantle the post office. We are at a period right now that frightens me in this respect profoundly. We haven't had all three branches of our government corrupted as badly as all three are corrupted today simultaneously since 1850. We all know what happened 10 years later. We are at a point that I compare to 1850. We're at a point where the nation is so divided, there is such incompetent government, there is such incompetent rule from the legal side of the House, principally the U.S. Supreme Court, and such a pollution of the legislative branch that you have all three of them at the same time, exactly as they were just prior to our Civil War, incompetent and incapable of governing. That's a 
that's an extraordinary statement for me to make, but it's the best historical example that I can find. Well, they, and if you they, they're, ama- they're amazing statements, but they, they're also backed up, it would seem, by your, your real interest in, I, I mean, I, I think what you're drawing here is parallels between the period we're in it now and the period leading up to the Civil War. Exactly. And what we had then was what the certain Enlightenment scholars called the tyranny of the minority. Mm. We had it then. We, we had basically the states that would form the Confederacy and would start the Civil War. We had them in charge in so many key places because of their very astute development of that minority and the power that they gained. And we've got that same thing today. We have this Donald Trump, for example, the man in the White House does not represent the majority of Americans. No way does he represent the majority of Americans, nor do the more draconian and dangerous aspects of his policies. They represent, at best, 30 to 35 percent of the American population. I think it's even lower than that if you parse it very, very carefully. That's the tyranny of the minority I'm referring to. They also very dangerously, again, are the minority that the FBI will tell you owns most of the guns in America. Some 300 to 400 million weapons are privately owned. And they own the predominant number of those guns. So this this is not just a tyranny of a minority that owns the Congress and owns the Supreme Court and owns the bench, the judicial bench in general, and owns the White House, this is a very well-armed tyranny of the minority. Very sobering, I must say. When, when Mike Pompeo was the head of the CIA, he said that it would become a much more vicious agency with far fewer constraints. I'm wondering what do you think he meant and what does it say to you that Pompeo is now in charge of the State Department? It says we're in trouble with regard to the diplomatic instrument. It already was in atrophy. It was already decaying majorly. And here we have a man in charge of it who not only does not understand the diplomatic instrument, he disdains it. And he is proving that most viciously and vividly with regard to U.S. policy towards Iran, where maximum pressure, as they call it, he and his emissary Brian Hook, is actually causing Iran to fall into the hands of China, causing Iran to have all manner of humanitarian problems right now that the United States should be helping with, not ramifying, not making worse. Um, this, This man... Mike Pompeo is probably the greatest disgrace to the U.S. Department of State, and that's saying something. If you look over the history of the State Department, that's saying something that we've ever had. As a a scholar, uh, Lawrence, of American history, what are some of the main rights we have lost over the past, let us say, 20 years? And what are some of the rights we still have now but are perhaps in the process of either waning or we're in the process of really totally losing? That's an interesting question, and it's a challenge to even offer an answer because so much is now being done in secret. Mm. The Congress 
is operating in secret, that Congress is passing laws in secret. The continuation of government, the COG program, is basically in secret, deep secret. Some of the most profound stovepipes, special compartmented information secrets you'd ever want to see. Much of what is happening is happening in secret because of post-9-11 maneuvers, statutes, some of them passed in secret too, that allowed this to take place allegedly to fight the, quote, terrorists in our midst and across the seas, unquote. The global war on terror, in other words, produced not just the Patriot Act, but lots of offspring of that act that are not even known to the American people. They're not known in the sense that they were passed. They're not known in the sense of what they actually do. And they're not known in the sense of who's enforcing them against whom, where, and when. And yet it's all happening. Uh, The average American, of course, goes to work every day, comes home at night, kisses his wife, has dinner, you know, whatever. She comes home, kisses her husband, has dinner, whatever. They have no idea what's happening because all of this is happening in secret. As it happens, it usurps every day a little bit more of our civil liberties, a little bit more of our privacy, a little bit more of our rights under the Bill of Rights, um, whether it's the Fourth Amendment or the First Amendment or the, the much valued Second Amendment. We are losing those things that were most precious to our founders in terms of the Constitution and would, uh, had they not been there, would have prohibited the Constitution from being passed altogether. It's happening every day. It's happening in the Congress. It's happening in the White House with similar actions with regard to executive orders. And it's happening with the court when they go into their secret sessions and make their discussions and decisions. The FISA court, for example, uh, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act court, which essentially rules on what the NSA does, much of which now is directed at Americans, not foreign enemies. And Americans forget that the NSA is not an independent agency. It works for the Secretary of Defense. Right, right, the right. Secretary of Defense. And it, it it is doing things, as Edward Snowden showed us so vividly, and others, Tom Drake, Bill Binney, and a host of other whistleblowers. It is doing things that uh, are inimical to our civil liberties and our ultimate interests, too. But as long as 230, 240 million, 250 million Americans don't see it, who cares about what it's doing to that guy over there or that woman over here or whatever? That's not happening to me, so uh, it's not too bad. I'll just keep on right. doing what I'm doing. Right, so what, what you're saying is I, you, you can't have a sense of what you're losing if you don't know what you have. Exactly. Yeah, there's nothing. I, I think I read this recently. There's nothing more dangerous than a man or a woman who thinks they're free and isn't. Wow. You have said, Lawrence, that you came to realize fairly early in your military career that America's wars abroad have everything to do with such seedy things as oil, commercial interests, and economic warfare. Isn't this, in fact, always true of all empires? And what might an alternative look like? And there I'm just hoping that um, in this dire conversation we're having, you might offer us even a slight shard of hope. There's no question that the imperial aspects of our republic today, that which we call America, the United States of America, are 
eating away at our soul, much the way they ate Rome's soul or they ate Britain's soul, as like the, their empires. People say, well, what, what can you do about this? How can you stop it? Endless wars, new nuclear weapons, new nuclear weapons, not getting rid of nuclear weapons, not arms control agreements, but new nuclear weapons, one point trillion, two trillion dollars worth of new nuclear weapons over the next 10 years. How do you arrest these tendencies, these endless wars, these new programs for nuclear weapons? And, oh, by the way, a president who has now not disdained or refused to, to a first use of those nuclear weapons. Most Americans would probably be astonished if they knew that all the president of the United States at this moment in time has to do to kill 200 million people and probably invite the same destruction on his own country at the same time is push a button. doesn't have to consult with his soul. And he can do it first now. That's where we are. Um, the way to back this up is for the American people a substantial and powerful minority of them, at least, if not a majority, need to get very, very angry and take their government back. Uh, that sounds like I'm advocating blood in the streets. I'm not, though it might turn out to be that way, ultimately. I'm not advocating that. What I'm advocating is that people need to get concerned, and they need to do things that register that concern. A good example for today I went through three different series of letters to my senators and my uh, representatives on issues like the National Defense Authorization Act, which is just so out of control, $750 plus billion when we've got so many other priorities and so many other needs for that money going to the military. Do you see the military fighting the coronavirus? Do you see the military rebuilding our infrastructure? Do you see the military getting ready to do the kinds of things that we need to do domestically, like improving our health care system and so forth? That money is being wasted. We need a lot of Americans who are very angry, very concerned, very smart, banded together to take our republic back. We need, we need what one military officer said to me the other day. We need patriotic dissent in this country. That's interesting. Patriotic That's dissent. so interesting. Now, in, in closing and briefly, sadly, I, I do want to ask you about the, the book you're writing, maybe finishing. I know it's over a thousand pages, if I'm correct about uh, the man you worked for so for so many years, Colin Powell. Um, I was taken by a quotation of Heraclitus that you mentioned, that man's fate is his character or his character is his fate. I think you, you might be slightly concerned by the book coming out and your relationship with Colin Powell and how it will play play out once it's out. I'd like you to tell us a little bit about about the book and where it is and when it might come out and what it might contain. Of course, I imagine you can't say all that much. You, you quoted the preface to the book. In the preface, I end by simply saying um, what Heraclitus said and then saying, if it's true, 
if a true man's fate is his character, then the fate of great men, and I certainly consider Colin Powell a great man, is the fate of nations. Right. And so the book is about how not only is Powell chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the highest ranking military man in the country, one of the youngest, the only black non-West Point graduate. There's so many unique things about him that when he comes to this pinnacle of power and then later uh, reaches another pinnacle of power as the Secretary of State, he is representative of the republic for which he, for which he labors. You see the decay of that republic through the very instrument that he rises to power in, the military. You see the decay of the republic come to some sort of uh, apex while he's Secretary of State, because the war with Iraq is going to go down in history if climate change allows history to continue to be written. And that's a big question. It is. Um, It's going to be written into history as probably the turning point in the American empire. In other words, after Iraq, the empire began to fall apart fairly swiftly. And so looking at Powell's life and looking at his rise within that empire, And looking at it from the perspective not only of an American citizen, but also a black American citizen, makes for some really interesting reading. Lawrence Wilkinson, it's been a a pleasure um, to speak with you. There's a lot to to think about here. I really thank you very, very much for, for taking the time to talk to us. And stay safe, and I hope we meet again. Well, thank you, and it was my pleasure, and you stay safe, too. Thank you so much. All the best to you. Bye-bye. And to you. Take care. To support this show and Dublab's progressive programming, go to dublab.com slash support.